This podcast is brought to you by Future Women, a new home for women to come together online and in person. Become a member to gain full access to Future Women's content, events and community. Plus, our packed calendar of member-only social club events. For more details, head to futurewomen.com. Hello, I'm Brooke Boney, your host for Season 2 of Next Generation Innovators, a podcast where we tap into the stories behind some of Australia's most successful entrepreneurs and how they've scaled their ideas into global businesses. So whether you're in business, you own one, or you dream of doing it yourself, these conversations will guide you through the ups and downs of startups, from ideation and development to investment and scale. Some of these women are incredibly inspiring and I cannot wait to share these conversations with you. If life was a poker game, you could say Catherine McConnell went all in, especially on her idea for Bright in 2016, redrawing on her mortgage and leaving her 14-year career as an asset manager at the Millionaire's Factory, also known as Macquarie Bank. That was skin in the game and for me something I, you know, I kind of think about is um, when people kind of say, is it going to work? Well, I just said, well, I've burnt the boat. There's no way to get back. Like, this has to work. The risk paid off. Today, Catherine is one of Australia's most exciting entrepreneurs. In 2019, Bright, a digital payment platform offering zero-interest payment plans for installation of solar panels, batteries and insulation, has secured $15.5 million in Series C funding as it prepares to make a move into Australia's home improvement sector. In October 2019, the startup had over 40,000 applications and 34,000 loan approvals. Bright is an incredible product market fit with impressive growth. But for Catherine, the mission is to build a company that lasts and that makes a difference. My job is to set up a business that lasts for 100 years. I think we're solving something that is real and the problems are real and we're adding value for, for vendors, for our customers. And so I want to set up something that's here for a long time. Um, and um, to do that, you've got to solve these, these really big problems. Future Women's Next Generation Innovators podcast is brought to you by Uber. Uber ignites opportunity by setting the world in motion. Uber believe good things happen when people can move, whether across town or toward their dreams. Opportunities appear, open up, become reality. What started as a way to tap a button to get a ride has led to billions of moments of human connection as people go all kinds of places in all kinds of ways with the help of Uber's technology. So take us back in time. Who was Catherine McConnell as a little girl? Was the entrepreneurial spirit something that you were born with or, or did it come a bit later? Definitely the entrepreneurial entrepreneurial spirit was not something um, that, you know, it, it existed or was dominant or really conscious as a little girl. Um, the entrepreneurial spirit was something I think that I've realised now that I have. Um, but, you know, definitely when I was a little girl, it wasn't lemonade stands and, you know, selling brownies door to door. Um, so as a little girl, just, you know, very, um, you know, loved studying, loved reading um, and just had a really happy childhood. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Yeah. What were the, uh, the values that you were brought up with? Were you encouraged to be creative and, and take risks and things like that? Uh, I grew up in southwestern Sydney, so Glenfield, um, and I'm Russian-Ukrainian. Um, so mum's Ukrainian and dad's Russian. He was a refugee. And um, so they were, you know, dad came here when when he was just, um, you know, into primary school. Um, and, and so I guess Australia to them was very new and fresh. Um, and so everything we did was, um, you know, there were no family history or legacy of what we should do and how we should do it. So maybe that, um, you know, was quite interesting to have that as a child growing up. Um, everything was about discovery and mum and dad moved to a new area and they had no, you know, history or preconception of, you know, um, how you should raise kids in Australia. Um, so I had a really free childhood, you know, I remember just being, um, riding my bike around Glenfield all day with my brother, um, you know, finding money wherever we could and buying lollies from the store and, you know, using a magnifying glass to make fires in the backyard. And, um, you know, I guess when I look at it now, it, it was a very free childhood. We were allowed to take risks. There were no 
boundaries on what we couldn't couldn't do and and potentially that did um, you know in, in a way it allowed me to be very creative and very free, free thinking um, you know and gave me the permission to take risks and you know when you kind of burnt your hand with the fire or fell off the bike and broke your arm you kind of learnt not to go too fast. I just want to tap into what you said about your parents as well yeah. you know being um, recent immigrants to yeah. Australia um, you know recent as it's yeah. you know, as in the last few <laughs> decades um, because there is a real entrepreneurial spirit for people who came here during that period isn't there? Uh, yeah, I, I think they were very hard workers. And when I think back, they were risk takers. You know, they came here with nothing and to have accumulated wealth and had children. And, um, you know, it's it's amazing to think that they, they did, you know, push the barriers and they did take big risks. Um, so, you know, yes, I think that there's a lot of, um, you know, resilience that's passed on and a lot of, you know, ethics around hard work. Um and rolling the dice, yeah, just yeah. sort of having a go. Yeah, taking a chance and what do you have to lose? And, um, you know, definitely I think when I reflect on the risks that I took, leaving a very stable job and starting a business, uh, you know, it was definitely rolling a dice and, well, mm. what have I got to lose? Absolutely. Yeah. Now, I want to go back to school. What sort of student were you? Did you – you went on to further studies after after high school? Yeah. So in, in primary school I was a nerd, um, you know, loved reading, loved studying and and, um, and then in high school I started to wisen up a bit um, that I had to, you know, be a bit more aware of how I looked and <laughs> not just head in the book. Um, you know, and, and then I went on to uni and I did an arts degree um, in Japanese and then a commerce degree um, that was at Wollongong um, and uh, – I guess at, at, at Wollongong Uni um, definitely did the degree, but I was more interested in the social side and, um, you know, pushing the boundaries and, you know, seeing how much fun I could have. And so that was a, you know, fantastic learning experience there. Uh, and then later on um, I've done a master's in finance. So, yeah. And so how did you end up at Macquarie Bank? So the it was it was my dad. He saw an advertisement actually a, a step before Macquarie. My dad saw an ad in a newspaper, and um, and it was it was talking about a job at Count Wealth Accountants um, in the city, and they were looking for, for interns from uni. Um, and so it was it was a year or two before I finished uni that I was able to you know travel up from Wollongong um, to the city to Mutton Place, and I was doing it one day a week, and um, and then I was doing it every school holidays. So before I finished uni, I. Was was able to get some experience in financial services and superannuation and so when I finished um, when I finished uni um, I was able to get a job at Macquarie um, having had some um, superannuation experience so it was in a customer service and cash management and superannuation um, but just having had that ground knowledge um, you know helped me get a foot in the door. When you started working in Martin Place mm. Did you just look around and sort of pinch yourself and think, this isn't the sort of place that a young Russian-Ukrainian woman from (laughs) southwest Sydney belongs? What am am I doing here? Yeah, I was the first uh, person in the family to to finish university Um, and then I was the first person in my family to have a job in the city. Um, And so mum and dad never understood actually I don't think now they really understand what I do but they're incredibly (laughs) proud you know they're incredibly proud and so um yeah it it was amazing I guess those first few years of working you know that um what I had at uni where it was discovery and socializing like that again um first few years of working in the city so you know Australians Australia Square drinks it was quite busy and then you know staying out all Friday night and this and that but it was definitely um you know it wasn't just the work and the job but it was just that wow it's in the city and it's big and bigger than uni and the opportunity is huge and all these new people with jobs that I, I didn't know people that had been arbitrage tra- you know or bond traders or for me it was just like wow <laughs> so trying to navigate that and understand the lay of you know how everything fit together and 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 it was just you know and amazing to think how much bigger the world was yeah Mm. and to you know there's this saying that you know if you can see it then you can be it so for you you know being the first in your family to go to university and to have a job in the city and then to see all of this stuff did you think hey this is you know this is where I want to be this is where I'm supposed to be yeah it was um it, it was more trying to understand what the roles were, what skill sets you needed to have the roles, and then did I have those skill sets? So I wasn't, 
sure at that stage of what my skill set or my talents were. So, um, you know, definitely at first I was looking at, well, which are the ones that pay the most because that's going to give me the best lifestyle. <laughs> and so, you know, it wasn't more about talent or passion. It was more, oh, these are prestigious areas to be in or these pay a lot. And um, so it, it was, um, you know, it was interesting earlier on in the career how I navigated where I wanted to be. And um, But it is... Um, you know, I did start to see that that there was a lot of opportunity. Potentially, um, you know, it was time, it was contacts. If you had certain contacts, you'd have it easier um, getting in. But moving to Macquarie Bank, I, I did see that that was a very prestigious brand, and I was aware from speaking with different people that once you're in there, that there was a lot of opportunity that you could get, um, and um, you know, you could move sideways within that organisation. It wasn't, you know, getting there wasn't the end. It was really just the beginning. So what were the best and worst things about working for such a huge institution? I mean, you know, when you think of Macquarie Bank, it's the millionaire's factory, yeah. isn't it? That's what they call it. So I, I started there. I was only there for about, about two and a half years in that um like retail banking area, and then I left to go to government for, for three years. So I went down to Canberra as an economist in Department of Finance Treasury, and then um, with my then fiance, um, we we moved back to Sydney. And so it was then I when I moved back to Sydney, I contacted Macquarie and um, moved into an asset finance area, and and that's where I stayed for eleven years. Um, and so it was it was more that second stint at Macquarie that was more formative. Um, and so the asset finance area um, it, it is definitely millionaires' factory. Um, you know, so the people that work there and the deals they do, and the you know my understanding of the type of bonuses they'd be paid are def- it's definitely millionaires' factory. And I think that's where um, you know I started to. See see that um, people had very different lifestyles in Sydney, um, you know, and the, the types of houses you could have or, you know, the schools you could send your kids to, um, you could definitely achieve more um, in an organisation like this, uh, working very hard and, um, you know, progressing up the ladder. And, and so is that where you learnt that the, you know, commercial focus could drive real results yeah, the good. So, just the the goods and the good and the bad things there, and driving results. That one of the greatest things I still speak, to, you know, would would praise about Macquarie is that um, they have very um, clear understanding of what their values are, and then also there's a really clear understanding of you know certain um, certain requirements that you know if you use the bank's capital that that you have to achieve these hurdles. But but outside of that, there is a lot of flexibility and freedom for how you structure. And, you know, how you optimise for outcomes that, that achieve these hurdles. And so for me, one of the positives, um, you know, and one of the, the great things I loved about working there was I think it's it's an environment where you get to be creative, um, where you work with really high calibre people. So you get pushed to be, you know, to be more competitive um, and, and always try and be better. Um but you do learn a lot of technical skills. Um, and so there are really clear, um, it's a clear understanding of what you have to do to, you know, how you can get ahead and what the hurdles are that you have to reach. I think positives were I thrived in that environment and um, and I look back and I think it's a very entrepreneurial company. Um, and it, it definitely gave me the, the foundation to be able to, set up a business like Bright. Um, and then the negative side is, you know, definitely I was, um, the, the, you know, I never had a female in my team for that last last 11 years that I was there. And um, In the entire 11 years there wasn't a woman in your team? No, so not in my, uh, not in the, I was in sales. Um, and so in, in, in my team in um, in the equipment finance business and the sales team um, and then also then when I was in the Sydney yeah, in, in, in the next next business and energy leasing, um, it 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 was okay because the colleagues that I worked with were amazing, and I had um, you know so much um, that I could learn. But it definitely did form um, views that that I now hold strongly to around diversity um, and around the importance of um, having diverse teams that are, um, I, I guess, you know, diverse teams promote the best outcomes for our customer because you can just see problems and outcomes so differently when you have so many different um, people around the table and gender diversity as well as age diversity and ethnic and cultural and um 
you know, so it's um, – yeah, the, the, in in my experience, there were other teams. I'm sure where they had, you know, m- more more females, but the the gender diversity wasn't wasn't something that I experienced in my um, in those eleven years. <laughs> you know, I'm in a position where, where I can do things differently, and it is something that I'm really aware of. Let's talk about Bright. It grew from a very simple insight, didn't it? That you had about the everyday Australians and, and their fears or uncertainties about how to pay their next big energy bill. Tell us about it. <laughs> so, um, you know, Bright underneath is a very complex business, but on the top, um, you know, we exist at the point of sale. And so we exist at the point of sale for when when people are buying solar batteries and also home improvements. And so when they're making these purchases, so specifically for solar, you know, if I think mum and dad walking, um, you know, call a solar installer and, you know, they're thinking of getting solar. And um, and so the reason why they're wanting to get solar is because it's it's their energy bills have increased, um, you know, quite dramatically, um, you know, and they may have seen a neighbour or they may have heard from someone that if you get solar, you know, solar can cut the cost of your energy bill, you know, potentially by a half or more and that each year you'll get about $1,000 in savings. And, you know, and if solar costs about $5,000, you know, potentially in five years you can, you know, with the savings you can pay off the solar and solar's got a warranty of about 20 years. So for the next 15 years then you can actually make make money. And so, you know, the reason why Australians are looking at solar is, is this you know, they don't have this discretionary income, you know, they're, they're really cash strapped and they're trying to make ends meet. And so if there's an opportunity that can save them money um, and, you know, and they can save money and then, um, you know, in time they can make money, you know, absolutely all Australians are starting to think about, well, how do I find out more? And um, the biggest barrier though, when Australians look into solar and they, you know, here it's $5,000 and they go, well, I don't have that $5,000 just lying around. And, you know, that purchase is too big for my credit card. Um, You know, so maybe I'm going to have to save and I'm going to have to wait a few years and, you know, but then they think, well, I want to start accessing those savings now, like why should I save? And so the, the the biggest barrier is the upfront cost. And so what Bright does is it exists at the point of sale um, where consumers are, you know, uh, making these decisions and making these inquiries and we're that enabler. And we give those consumers the ability to be able to overcome that upfront cost, um, you know, get the certainty at that point of sale that they can make that purchase and they can pay it back over time and immediately start enjoying those savings. And so we exist at the point of sale because we have a relationship with those vendors or those retailers. So we've got over a thousand of those, you know, um, retailers um, signed up around the country and over 4,000 of their sales agents at the point of sale are, you know, offering Bright. And why they do that is because um, they also want to close that sale, you know, and they know the biggest barrier to them closing that sale is the customer, you know, may not have the ability to make that payment on the spot. And so we're helping the business who's making the sale. So we're helping them get certainty at the point of sale. We're helping them close that sale. And as soon as the job's done, we're paying them. And so we're taking on that credit risk as well. They don't have to chase that customer up for payment. So we're effectively helping the businesses and then we're helping the consumers, Um, you know, and we're a business that's an enabler. So who is your customer now? And, And who do you want it to be in the future? To be honest, our customer now is the vendor and in the future our customer, we're going to have more and more of a direct relationship with consumers. We've had over 40,000 customers apply. Um, We've been in business for three years. We've had over 40,000 customers apply um, to have a Bright account and um, the, the Bright payment plan is a reusable facility. So when a, when a consumer signs up to, you know, to buy solar and they get a payment plan, you know, they download the Bright app and in that app, they can actually use their credit facility again and again to make purchases for their home. So we have customers that have used us, you know, for the second purchase to buy some more solar, third purchase to get some air conditioning, fourth purchase to get some new flooring. So in the app, they're able to shop again and again, do quotes, inquiries, and that creates the, you know, lead generation back to our business partners to be able to help them grow their sales. So right now, um, we're really growing that marketplace, that side with all the vendors, bringing more more businesses on, helping them with their cash flow problems in solar, in home improvements, and, um, you know, just developing that direct relationship with the customer. But in time, I do see that direct relationship with that customer being, you know, even more powerful and us being able to help that customer, you know, um, you know, access a, a more sustainable home, a more comfortable home. And solar 
obviously in Australia, it's such a sunny country, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, it, it just works here. What are the statistics around the potential for solar? Yeah. So there are about two and a half million homes that have solar, um, you know, and there, are, there there's no definitive stats. People have done studies, but they say about seven million homes are solar suitable. So if we just look at you know, just look at homes. Um, and so of those two and a half million homes that have solar, um, a lot of those homes have systems that are very small. So, you know, at least a million and a half of that two million are candidates to get more solar. Um, and then of the, you know, the remainder, um, you know, they're candidates for, you know, for solar, you know, for batteries in the future. So it's, um, it's, it's, it's a really big pool um, of customers. So what has your growth been like to date and and do you when you're projecting do you think of those seven and a half million homes that are suitable and think you know we're going to get you guys you're all going to have solar Yeah absolutely um so we look at um I guess we look at things in a few different ways we look at um we look at how many of these businesses we want to have on our platform and we look at how many customers we want to have on our platform. We have had um, over 40,000 apply and we've had over 34,000 approved and that's wow. in this month. It's, we've been in business for three years. Um, and then last month we had about 4,000 customers, um, you know, 4,000 customers apply and that compares to the first month where we had 30 customers. So three years ago in October, we had 30 customers, you know, come through the door. And so this month we're, you know, it's looking at 4,000. Pretty so, good year on year Yeah, so it's a big growth rate. Um, and so, you know, obviously we've got our forecasts on that month on month, you know, increase. Um, but, you know, we look at things because we're a lending business from the size of our loan book um, and our loan book's a little over $150 million now um, and we see by 2022 that loan book being a billion dollars um, with the rate of growth that, you know, we've been experiencing and, you know, just some conservative forecasts. So it's, um, you know, we, we see this as um, we have what's called product market fit and, and so we've created a product that's solving real problems and so it's a it's, it's it's a real opportunity and so if we can just continue to go deeper in that problem and you know s- create new features and products that really help those businesses and really help those consumers at that point of sale or just somewhere along that associated journey um, there's no reason why that billion dollars you know can't can't be bigger and um you know but it it really rests with us just continuing to you know understand our customers and do you think that understanding your customers building in new features and you know keeping very agile and being able to pivot is what gives you an edge over your competitors yeah, I, I definitely think it's understanding our customers. And so I started this business because I, I had been in, you know, asset finance and specifically developed products for solar installers and um, and and knew that they were telling me that they didn't have a product on the market that worked for them and that worked for their customers. And so, um, you know, the reason my bright started was because it was genuine, real um, problems we were solving and um, and it's easy sometimes to get, to tr- you know, distracted and, you know, there's some great idea and this and this that we want to solve, but it's so important just to always come back and, um, you know, listen to your customers, listen to the vendors, listen to the consumers and, you know, they, they want it to be faster at this point. They want more communication at this point. You know, they want the ability to, um, you know, more communication at, when we pay them or, you know, more information on the app. And um, so there's there's lots of different um, things we've done. I guess one of the big things we've done is we've started, um, when we started, there was one credit product. We had a, a payment plan. It's a buy now, pay later payment plan. Um, and then we identified that there was an opportunity to set up a personal loan. Um, so we got a credit license and, you know, we set up the personal loan and um, and we launched that um, a couple of months ago just to a small group of our vendors. Um, and we're already getting, um, you know, about three, four million dollars um, a month in our third month of, you know, business, you know, just, just through launching this personal loan to a very small group of um, vendors. So I think that just proved that, you know, if you listen to your customers, they can give you the business ideas. Um, We just have to execute and, you know, execute efficiently and effectively um, and then take their feedback now. And there's things that we've got to do to make that loan product better, but we're taking that feedback and we're putting in a, you know, strategic roadmap to be able to 
um, you know, make those changes. And to be able to pivot from one sort of lending to another, you know, from a sort of um, a buy pay now, pay, and- pay later to a personal loan sort of account, I guess is great in case, you know, things out of your control change, regulation, the market, exactly. whatever. And that's what, you know, I see my job is to set up a business that lasts for 100 years. You know, I think Jack Ma wants to set up a 53, um, you know, a business plan for 53 years. And so, you know, I, I think we're solving something that is real and the problems are real and we're adding value for, for vendors, for our customers. Um, and so I want to set up something that's here for a long time. Um, and um, to do that, you've got to solve these these really big problems. And, you know, you definitely have to think about, well, what are the risks that you're going to face? And you've got regulatory risks. You've got, you know, different, um, you know, regulatory is a very big risk when you're dealing with an unregulated buy now pay later product. And yeah. so to be able to create that defensiveness and hedge in the business with a second finance product not only solves your customers' problems, but it also creates a you know second boat and um, defensive hedge for the business. A bit so, more certainty for you. So that's a few part less of my sleepless job. nights. <laughs> Build this business and think about you know just think about how we can you know do things better and also you know guarantee a you know long term future for Bright. What is it that makes you confident? that your business can succeed because I think it's one thing to have an excellent idea, identify an opportunity, solve a problem, but then to be confident enough to leave your secure job at Macquarie and think, you know, I think this has got legs and not just for this, you know, this next 10 years, but for my whole career. I think I think there's two parts to it. So one for me was when you make that initial decision to leave, I think it's you know, that decision was based on I had confidence that this was a business that would work. And and um, and so it was that initial period of like that product market fit. And, and I knew it was going to work because Macquarie had given me the foundation and the background to understand with these parameters, if you reach these hurdles, Macquarie will back that idea. And if Macquarie backs the idea, well, then, you know, you become a millionaire. You can so back yourself I if they can back you. I, I'd been taught, I'd been taught, you know, how to consider and the framework for how to consider if a business is a good idea. And, you know, and, and, and this was a good idea. It wasn't something Macquarie could do, um, you know, um, but it was a good idea. And so I, I had the confidence that it was going to work. So that was the first thing um, I was really confident in the problem, the opportunity, you know, w- what I could bring to solve that problem. Um, so that was the first thing. But the second thing is once you kind of get that product market fit, it comes down to building a company, not just do you have traction with that idea? And once we prove we had traction, I think the harder thing is actually building a company. So Bright's just got just under 100 people now. Um, so from zero to three years, 100 people, we've got, you know, financial controllers, you know, CFO and chief risk officer. And we've got this amazing group of people. And so it's 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 putting in place, you know, funding warehouses and running equity, you know, equity capital, you know, capital raises and um, putting in place the right processes and documents. And that's building a company, you know, it's not just having an idea and does that idea work? So there's a transition period though, isn't there? I mean, before you finish at your secure job where you have an income and you you sort of, you know, there's the comfort and um, stability of being there, you're building this up and and then you go, okay, now I'm going to take the leap of faith. And then you do it. Yeah. So for about six months before, I was probably thinking, thinking about that, that there was an opportunity and six months before we'd got some more solar, we'd got a battery and I just, you know, and, and I knew that Macquarie couldn't do, couldn't do this idea. Um, and so I, I just, I just felt that the opportunity was, was too big, that the solar installers feedback was too real, that my personal experience with getting the battery was just real. I just saw the future and I saw one day, you know, a lot of homes around Australia are going to have batteries and the people who are selling batteries and solar are saying that they don't, have a solution to be able to move that barrier to that purchase happening at the point of sale. So I was hearing everything. I was feeling it from personal experience and I had the skill set. But yeah, that that transition from safe, secure job to it's just, it's crazy. I think founders are crazy fundamentally because no one makes that decision to leave stability and security to, to take on what is just unknown. Like you can't guarantee future or certainty or success, no matter how much hard work you do. Mm-hmm. And and I do just think that's just, that's just the 
bit of craziness, you need to have a founder yeah. to be a founder, you yeah. know. And so you um, need a little bit of craziness, a little bit of mongrel, yeah. a little bit of inspiration <laughs> from the immigrant parents, yeah. a bit of resilience, <laughs> and then you just do it anyway. Yeah, that's it. And I mean, you know, when we started, um, we put the first year and a bit um we we kind of used the first million dollars to get the business started from the home loan so um we redrew on the mortgage and we said that there's a million dollars so with my husband um pete who's just amazing and you know he said listen i'm going to back you and um like let's give it a shot and it's it was real money and it was really big decisions we sacrifices we made in the family and I think that's different a lot of founders that start um, have an idea they go straight to get capital and then they use that private capital to build the business whereas I, I kind of um, had an idea you know left my job finished off the business plan and then it was real money I was using and transferring from the mortgage to, to pay salaries, to, you know, set up the company, um, develop the app wow. and then um, even the first loans that we made were from the, you know, the McConnell family mortgage. So um, that wow. was skin in the game and for me something I, you know, I kind of think about is um, when people kind of say, is it going to work? Well, I just said, well, I've burnt the boat there's no way to get back like this has to work you have to make it work because literally you you've taken it from your own yeah no we've we've left we've kind of like I'm on the island I've burnt the boat I can't get back this is it and so that um it was real money it was real sacrifices we made and um and so it was just working hard working smart and um were there any moments where you thought oh no we've really we've really cooked it here you right. just full momentum the whole time. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I suppose yeah. you have to just back it, don't you? Once you've once you're there. Yeah, I As think that's said, the craziness. On the island. <laughs> yeah, that's the craziness now. I think I had someone say to me last week in the yeah, work actually, "What's Plan B if this?" you know, this new idea that we have, what, what's plan B? And I just, oh, yeah, you have little faith. <laughs> I was like, what? And everyone just said you had daggers in your eyes. I was just like, we burnt the boat. There's no plan B. This is going to work. Uh, who did you seek advice from when you were taking the plunge? Um, so first it was my, hus- my husband, Peter McConnell. So, um, and I will say that he's the most strategic and um, – he's had some amazing experiences from when he was chief of staff as a premier and, you know, then on the board at Woolworths and, you know, head of, head of corporate affairs there and, um, you know, other experiences. And, um, and so he's, he's seen, he's managed large teams and he's been in large companies and he's, he's, he knows how a board works or, and, and so, so many areas of, of things that I'm going through, he's been able to give me context and, and help me navigate some experiences that I haven't, you know, haven't um, had before, but I'm, I'm kind of about to walk in, walk into, and and so he he has been my biggest source of inspiration and continues to be. Um, and outside of him, um, you know, at different points of the journey, I've I've been really lucky to have some amazing supporters. And so Mike Cannon Brooks came on um, after what year was that? Um, so 2015, I left Macquarie. 2016, started lending. Um, actually, it was. It was 2016 I got to know Jeremy Kwong Law, who's in charge of um, Mike's family office, Grok. Um, so, you know, I got to um, just shut my first round and then, you know, got to, to work with Grok. And um, so it, it, it was through that um, relationship that I was able to get to know Mike. And, um, you know, early on in the piece, I was meeting with Mike every month or so. And he was providing, um, you know, very important, um, very tactical feedback around how I should manage um, or a response to my questions, how I could manage these, you know, different scenarios or problems. And to be able to get advice from someone like that is just unbelievable. <laughs> so, and it's real and it's genuine. Um, and I've had other people like that, be they investors. So, you know, with Airtree and Craig Blair's on our board and, you know, and he, he for him, I see it's a lot of pattern recognition. He's seen different companies going through different journeys and, you know, being able to reach out to someone like that, it's, it's just, well, this, this, this could happen. Or when you kind of hit this metric, this could happen. And what I've seen is, you know, here are some options. And so um, I think it's just that, you know, being really, um, you know, really brave and really genuine and reaching out for, for help and then kind of taking on what's relevant and um, 
you know, potentially what may not be as relevant to your situation. And so when you're talking about um, initially starting and, and using your own money, the first million from, you know, from your own bank account, basically, um, how did you move then from um, raising money? I guess you, you know, you went out to family businesses and, um, you know, Airtree and, and others. How did you get them to, to yeah. hand over some cash? So that was, it was, you know, it was about a year a year in, um, I, I knew I needed to to raise that money. So it took me about six months um, to raise money. I did, you know, I don't know what felt like hundreds of meetings. But in the end, I was able to get on um, 33 high net wealth, you know, high net wealth um, individuals. Um, and, and that enabled me to raise $3.5 million um, to be able to use um, – one and a half million dollars towards operating expenses and two million dollars towards the first part of my loan book. Um, and and so it was a family and friends round first. Um, it was at that time that, you know, I got to know Grok and Mike and, and, and my first round had just shut. Um, what was amazing was, um, you know, Mike was able to come in and, and Grok were able to come in and they actually um, gave me the commitment that and the funds that they'd fund the first part of my loan book. Um, so, you know, it was basically the, the next 10 million dollars um, in exchange for that, that they got equity rights to take the next round that I did. So that was a great position to be in because, um, you know, it, it, I'd started the business and I'd just shut my first three and a half million dollar round and I'd got commitment to get my debt book started. And then I got, you know, the the confidence that I had like a, you know, really high profile backer to come in on the Absolutely, next round. Absolutely, yeah. So the first round was three and a half million and then it was a year later I did um, a four million dollar round and that's when Mike came on. And then it was a year later that I did, um, so last year, 2018 then, I did 18 and a half million and that was led by Airtree. Um, and um, others coming in on that round were, um, so Kim Jackson, Scott Farquhar via their vehicle, Skip Capital, and then also Naomi Milgram and Adam Milgram. So, um, and um yeah, so and a, a few others, Chris Morris from Computer Share and his family office. Um, so that was, you know, that was last year. We've just shut another round. That was fifteen and a half million. Um, so that that's all banked now, and and that was once again led by Airtree. So, so that was unbelievable. Um, that was the. It's it's not very often that a VC will lead a round twice. Yeah. Um, so they've done that. And um, and then we brought, uh, so others that came through on that round were, were Grok came in again, Skip, um, Naomi Milgram and Adam, and then we brought on a new Singaporean investor, Qualgro. So tell me then, how did you convince Airtree that you were onto a winner? Because women are so much less likely than men to seek venture capital, to be involved in this sort of business. And they're even less likely again to be successful. Um, so it was, you know, it's just that reaching out and, and, um, and so early on in my journey, you know, I was introduced to Bo at Prosper, Bo Bertoli, and he introduced me to Airtree and, you know, so I met Airtree, um, in 2016 and, and it was two years before they came on in the round. So, you know, when I first spoke to them to come in on that seed round, it was too early and, you know, they weren't able to do that. But over that two year period, um, you know, I, I, um, informed them about my milestones <laughs> and um, I kept them updated on what I was doing. And um, Is that a polite way of saying that you pestered them relentlessly yeah, until did. they I, gave you money? I think Craig Blair even laughs that he said, I'm the only person who said, listen, Craig, I want to take you out for lunch. And I paid and we just went to some sushi and, you know, so I, um, you know, I, I, I thought they um, had great experience in, in companies like Prosper and companies like Canva. And, um, and I thought that they would be a really good partner to help me navigate that next stage of my growth. So um, I think as far as Australian VCs, there are only a few big VCs and they're definitely one of the best. Um, and 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 I, I really wanted them on the register and I really wanted their strategic um, support to help me grow the company. So it, it it was once again, I burnt the boat. I had to make it work. It, mm -hmm. You hustled. No, it wasn't good enough. <laughs> you yeah. know, like yeah, not, you not knew now what you wanted was and you opportunity. Just... It, not not yeah. now, I meant later, you know. So it was just that that resilience and that persistence really. As far as females, um, I think it goes back to like my time at Macquarie and, and that goes back to, you know, I was in sales, in asset finance and I think that's a really great background to set up a company like this and I was the only female on the team. Um, and so when I looked around, I, I didn't see a lot of people that had that 
same breeding ground that I had that really perfectly positioned me to be able to run a business like this. Um, and also, you know, in the old job, I was I was selling equipment finance to large corporates. I was pitching all the time. Um, and, and that definitely gave me the understanding, the ability for, for how to, you know, kind of pitch a finance opportunity and pitch yourself and a business and kind of manage a sales cycle and process. Um, and also operate in an environment that's dominated by men. Yeah. And traditionally has been. Because that's, I think, a skill in itself, isn't it? Being a woman going into something like that, knowing how to navigate it, knowing how to, you know. Yeah, and I, I like, I, I am aware that my communication style is different. Um, how so? So, you know, even though I'd done a commerce degree in economics and a master's of applied finance, it's one of those areas where I say I'm not very good at this, but absolutely, you know, I'm not very good at finance and this and that. Oh, like that traditional, yeah. like women, but like, sorry, but can you yeah. please go to the you know, board yeah. and, you know, do this <laughs> yeah. PV, this, this, this. And yeah. so, um, you know, so, um, you know, once I was actually pulled up on it, I was in a meeting and I had, um, you know, someone with me and they were closer to the whiteboard. And, and so when we were asked to do this explanation of this, this, um, a statement that we made and and so that person just got up because they were closer to the whiteboard and you know I was comfortable with that but you know it was kind of called out to me that you know I should have got up and shown that I could have done that calculation um and I think the assumption was there that I didn't do because you know either I didn't, didn't know, know which it. was potentially uh, why wouldn't I know it like you know and so I I think sometimes you have things happen to you and, and you know they make you less confident but you know and then also like that self-fulfilling prophecy. I say I'm not good at it and then, you know, it, it, it kind of follows through. But there, there's absolutely nothing that points to that given my studies and given my experience. And, you know, I think it's something to be really careful of as, you know, potentially it's something females are, you know, that we deflect, we, um, you know, put ourselves down or, you know, really are not confident in highlighting our strengths. And, um, and, and potentially there are areas where we kind of feel, well, you know, traditionally – they are, you know, males are better at those areas. And I think it's something I have to be really careful that I don't do that and I don't model that. And, um, and I don't let people think that, that I really try and change that um, for other females and, you know, don't let them have that stupid thought that I've had. Um, I think that's the responsibility I have. What can we do to change the situation with, you know, women seeking funding in the first place, but then also you know, being granted the funding as well? I think granted is really hard because I think you have to have a good business idea. So I think it's like, you know, maybe earlier on in the journey. Um, I think it's around having the confidence to to take that risk, um, develop an idea and back yourself. And I think it's that kind of first part that it seems, you know, enough females aren't getting to that point, you know, and then once they get to that point, I think it's, you know, if they haven't had the experience to be able to develop that process for what they have to do to get to that next stage to request funding. Um, so, I, I, you know, as far as that confidence and, and then that next stage, um, I think that there are now a lot more, um, you know, there's a lot more support through, you know, I've been through Heads Over Heels, I've participated in Vogue Codes and there's a lot more support and awareness in the industry of like we want to, you know, address you know, specific um, areas where females are lacking confidence or lacking in understanding. So I can see that since from when I started now, it appears as though that there's a lot more support to help females. And I do think that the future will be different because of that. Um, and then I have been very fortunate to, to bring on Kim Jackson with Skip Capital. She's a huge supporter of female founded companies and, um, and just her style in questioning and you know, I have found that to be very different from from other um, you know other investors that that I've presented to. So um, I, I definitely think more more females like Kim and like Naomi Milgram and um, heads over heels and you know really actively wanting to to give back and and to help help females and you know just being a bit sympathetic on them if they you know don't say the right thing or giving them the opportunity just to try again and you know to to kind of address what the shortcoming or the shortfall was in that pitch or that presentation um you know I think you need you do need some of that just to help more people get through but ultimately I think the good idea is get the backing um and if your idea is good enough um you know I I do think people 
buy good ideas and 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 I can speak to that for myself like I had to present a lot and it wasn't perfectly formed but in the end I was able to get get backing and um yeah and here we are yeah <laughs> here we are <laughs> and so let's talk more about Bright what approach did you take to hiring when you started setting the company up okay when you hire and you um you know, and people are kind of wondering where you're getting your money from to pay salaries. You know? <laughs> you're like, I swear I'm good for it. <laughs> so you, Checks I, in the I, mail. Don't cash it till next Thursday. <laughs> so I got some amazing people at the start. But, you know, when I think back, you don't have a brand or a product. And so you can't be as picky. So I'm not saying I didn't get great people, but you can't really go out and say, I live by these values. If you don't have them, I'm not going to hire you. So I think a lot of those values, you kind of develop in the culture you develop over time. Um, but earlier on, like I had specific, specific technical problems I needed solved. So I hired specifically for technical. And then it was that element of like, do I get along with you? And so that do I get along with you, I guess in time, what that's progressed into is a, a set of of cultural values um, so it's not like a group thing it's not I'm just picking people who are like me but you know so you know we've got values and it's be human you know so be authentic be genuine it's call the ball so it's take accountability ownership responsibility and so we have these values and I guess when I was kind of did I get along with that person it was like you know it, it, it was a way of saying do they fit the values that I have um, now um, we're in a really amazing position that you know we can direct just advertise a role on LinkedIn and seek and you know in a matter of a week or two we can get 200 plus applicants coming through directly wow. um, of a very very high caliber so I think now um, we're in a really different position where um, we are looking for cultural alignment we are looking for um, do people possess the same values as what our company holds? And um, are they curious? Are they problem solvers? Are they resilient? As well as having the technical skills, like that's just not enough anymore. Was that one of the hardest parts about the first few months in business? You know, not having the luxury of being particularly picky about who you're working with or the values that they have and they're bringing to your business? I, I think what's really What's really, I guess, sad about being in, in a really high growth organisation is that some of the people that you um, hire to solve particular problems that we had when we started, like those are not the problems that we're solving now. So we're trying to become the billion dollar company and then we were just trying to prove that we were viable. And so what's really sad is, you know, I was told by someone that in this type of um high growth company it's like every 12 years someone has to prove that they still fit the job description for the job that you now need them to do in the next 12 months and um and so that is um I, I'm really understanding that. So some of the people who were with us at the start are still here. Some of them aren't. And, and, and it's just because that they didn't have that that's those skills to be there with us on the next stage of the journey. And so um, I'm, I'm more aware of that now and I'm, I'm just trying to hire to solve the problem and supporting staff to be able to get to the next level. But it's, a, um, it's at the start, I guess, um, I hired exactly who I needed to get the job done. Um, and then I guess, you know, what I had to learn as a leader and a manager of people was, you know, I guess recognising when, when those people had hit their limits and they kind of tapped out and, um, you know, could I provide them support to get the next level or potentially not and just how we could work together to really find a way for them to, you know, move on to something else and, um, you know, and do that in a really um, respectable way. Um, but I guess that's that's a hard thing about being a people leader and that's probably something about management that, you know, I get better at identifying, um, you know, when that's happening and, and earlier instead of just at that moment when you go, actually, it's it's – it's not the right time. Yeah. It's like managing a breakup, isn't it? Yes. It's breaking up with people when, you know, when it, the, the relationship is no longer um, in a growth phase, I guess. But you're having to do it over and over and over. Yeah, it's it, that that's really hard and that's something that, you know, when I speak to other founders um, and my investors, um, that's – something that they have you know helped me understand is quite normal in this this business and and so um you know speaking to that to our team um just 
sooner in the journey and, um, you know, more frequently, I think is really important. And it didn't seem, you know, Macquarie was a really high performing culture. And if you didn't meet your targets and, you know, you definitely kind of weren't sticking around, but I think it's even more so in a, in a company like ours, if it's not even, if you're not hitting your targets, it's just if the, 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 those technical skill sets and, and, and those, um, um, attributes that you need um, for that next stage of the company. Like, you know, Bright was a, you know, early stage fintech and now we're moving towards a small cap, you know, trying to look to how we can be a mid cap company uh, and act like that. It's, 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 a, it's a really different type of um, skill that we needed. Mm, absolutely. Now tell me about your working week. What does it look like? Are you always on? Do you make time for yourself? Do you have any time yeah. to make space for yourself? Like I love what I do and there's no um, there's no separation between bright and everything else. So it's it's not that I see it as, you know, am I always on, always working. It's just I, I just love what I do and it's um, so it's – So it's, there's no clocking on and clocking off. No, it's just – yeah, it's just, you know, I'm always thinking about – always thinking about work and um, it's not work really. I hate the word work. It's always just thinking about bright and thinking about oh, I've missed that or, you know, the different things that I've gone through, all of a sudden something will just click in my head and go, oh, that's how it all connects. And um, it's it, it's my family and it's 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 bright. It's, it, it, you know, I, I have unfortunately um, dropped kind of everything else and I think in a complex business like this, it's, um, you know, there's not a lot of room to, to kind of have a social life and have other things. And, um, for me, it's, it, it, it's, it's bright, it's family and it's trying to exercise and, you know, health and sleep. Mm. Like that's all, that's yep. all I can really fit Eating, in. sleeping, children, work. That's it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's it. And that's, that's, that's a good life. Yeah, yeah. absolutely <laughs> it is. Do you think the balance is a realistic aim for someone who's just, in the early stages of starting a new business? I do, but I think of balance as, you know, trying to fit in family, work, sleep and exercise. Um, I don't think the fifth kind of thing, the friends you can put in, if you put kind of friends in, well, I've kind of, there was a book um, actually that was saying, well, potentially you can put it in, but not every day. So you might kind of say on one day you drop out the exercise and you put the friends in. I don't think every day you can have it all. No. Um, and I think you can have balance, but your perception of what balance is changes. Yeah. I think that you, uh, what I've tried to do is combine them. So sometimes I'll bring a friend along if I have to go and do some work, you know, go to a gig or go to an event or something or exercising. I'll try to involve a friend in that because I, I feel the same, you know, yeah. otherwise you never really see anyone. And your hours would be very, oh, they're know, so weird. unpredictable. I'm, I'm pretty much like a toddler. I go to bed at like eight o'clock and I'm up very early before the sun comes up. And you are, but you are a parent, so yes. you know you you do you fit everything together. You know the children are alive and healthy, yeah. so that's that's important. How do you and your partner make it all fit? What's your philosophy for managing a busy and challenging life? We used to juggle, but this year um, the juggle didn't work. So Pete's now primary caregiver, um, so he's now at home, and so that's um, I'm appreciative because it's a huge sacrifice for him with a you know amazing career to be able to say listen I'm just going to take take a bit of time off just to you can focus on 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 work um prior to this we were juggling and so it was about communication and it was about a really strong relationship and um you know trying to know that um you had to accommodate you know each other and you know what was important um and um yeah, so communication's just, you know, absolutely key. And so how did it come about? Did you have a very frank conversation at the end of the year and say, look, this isn't working, something's got to give? Yeah. And then he sort of put his hand up and said, yeah, it's fine. I'll take one for the team at this stage. And Yeah, he um, – so we had, had noticed that, you know, the kids were not going as well as, you know, as, as well as they were and we just saw that, you know, potentially there were some, some areas that – that, you know, we weren't around and they were getting um, values from other people who were, you know, caring for them and those values weren't our own. Or um, and, and so we made a decision that, um, that that they were really important to us, as important as everything else in our life, and we had to, you know, we had to 
put some resources in to focus on them. And um, and so Pete was amazing because he said that, um, you know, when I had kids and, and I went back to work, I did work part-time and he had a career that was very intensive. And and he said, listen, you've, you've had to take time off. And he said, and I believe because you took time off, potentially you weren't taken seriously. So you took some hits in your career to really to help me get ahead. And he said, it's my turn. Like, it's my turn to take the time off. It's my turn to, you know, let you focus on um, your career. And, um, and he said, you know, I think you're going to be good at it. Like, I'm going to back you. So th- for me, um, the, the sacrifice that he's made to, to help me get ahead also inspires me to, you know, this has to work. Um, and um, it also helps me know that, um, you know, I have to give back and make sure that I don't just work all night and I'm home for dinners and, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm there to share my journey with him and um, because of that sacrifice that he's made to, to um, help me, you know, fulfil this next stage of my, my career. What an incredible partner. Amazing. <laughs> We're so, very lucky to have someone who's, who's so supportive and so nurturing and I, I love that you're so grateful in return. Well, it's, it's been an amazing tag team um, and, you know, to know that when I took that time off and it was, you know, it is hard when you're navigating kids and, you know, you're home alone and, and um, it's really lovely to know that, that he saw that and he appreciated that and respected that um, and and likewise that's what I have to do you know I, I'm seeing what he's doing and I appreciate and respect um, and and so it's that tag team and it I makes me that, feel I, I feel teary just thinking about the mutual respect that you have for each other and each other's careers because you know not that long ago our mother's generations where it would have just been taken for granted mm. both ways do you have time to reflect on your own achievements, do you do you reflect on the success of Bright? How does it make you feel? Are you still hungry for more, or are you uh, yeah, very proud hungry. of your own of your achievements thus far? Um, really, like just the opportunity is just so big. I just. I, like what I see is a lot of the things that aren't working. Still, I don't see perfection, or I don't see, you know, the us as a company very far progressed on our journey. I see us just like at the very, very start still. Um, and so in that sense, like, I, I don't, like I, I look back and I look at our numbers and I think actually they're big numbers. Like, you know, we've we, we've had wins. Um, you know, I try to be careful because, you know, the, the team are doing amazing things. And so something I, I, I do and take time to do is share the wins with the team. Um, and what I do is I love champagne. And so I love I, champagne too. We should have got a bottle yeah. in here. It's champagne <laughs> o'clock. Well, I pop the cork. And so when we have wins, I pop the cork and, you know, we drink champagne and we talk about the wins and I write on the cork, um, you know, the date and the win, the milestone. Um, and then someone at work, Archana, one of our lead developers, she created me this little box. And so I've got this box where, you know, we've got about 20 or so corks in there now. Um, and so everyone always says to me, is this a, you know, they had a bit of a milestone before I left. Someone said, oh, it's a champagne moment. And I said, let me think about it. You know, <laughs> so everyone wants champagne at work. Um, but, you know, so we we had one just last week where we celebrated as a team the equity race, the 15 and a half mil. And I got the people who are involved in that race to come up and like pitch to the team about what they were pitching to the business. And, you know, at some different points, the problems they had to answer and why people invested and people could ask questions. And, you know, so we celebrated the win and, um you know, we do do that as a team. Um, but personally, you know, do I reflect on it? No, no, I don't, I don't reflect on this success personally, um, in my, you know, quiet time, but I, you know, my eyes still kind of like just further down the road and, Mm -hmm. you know, just thinking of just all the, you know, all the amazing things I think that we can achieve. What, What's the ultimate champagne movement? What would you love to write of one of those corks to put in the box? I'd love it to be written somewhere that, you know, um, that um, that Bright made a difference, um, you know, that the world's a better place because we existed. You know, for me, that just, that, that statement would just be, yeah, that's, like, that's doing something that's being remembered and it doesn't, you know, it doesn't have to be a big... You know, it can just be these businesses, the thousands of, you know, people who use us at the point of sale and we make their life easier and we help them get paid and that pay helps them 
you know, pay their groceries and this. And I'd love, um, I'd love lots of people to say, whether it's the consumers, like, you know, I was able to get this solar and it saved my family money. And the money that we used, we paid for our school fees or, you know, we're already getting some case studies that, you know, the savings they've used. I was going to say, I think it might be champagne o'clock. I think it's time to (laughs) pop that cork. Imagine in a couple of years when people have paid off the $5,000 loan. that, And then they just, you know, that $1,000 every year. And so for me that, you know, on both sides, helping businesses and, you know, and they're just, their families all around Australia who are backing themselves just like I did and they're taking a risk on growing a business and making their business and their journey easier and then the, the, the families who are just like mine trying to save money and just trying to make ends meet and you know that in a way you know who would have thought that you know you can be a banker and you can do all this and you can help people and you know you don't you know, potentially you don't have to go to other countries and you don't have to do these things that are very deliberate and I'm going to go and make this decision to help people, that you can use your talent, your experience and um, and then, you know, put your, your mind to it and you can still have an outcome um, that can really make a difference and help people. Well, Catherine McConnell, thank you very much thank for you. joining us. You're an inspiration. <laughs> thank lovely. you so much for having me. I really, <laughs> you know, great to be here. Thanks for joining me this week with Bright's Catherine McConnell. Please tap those stars and leave us a review. And if you're in the mood, why don't you go on and tell some of your friends about us as well. This podcast is supported by Uber. Uber ignites opportunity by setting the world in motion. What started as a way to tap a button to get a ride has led to billions of moments of human connection as people go all kinds of places in all kinds of ways with the help of Uber's technology. 